If you have a Bible, please open it with me to Titus chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 11 through 14. I, I was joking with my wife the other day that I have preached on this text more times than any other text in the Bible, I think nine other times. I have like a Christmas sermon, I've got an eschatology sermon, <laughs> I've got an education sermon. But the funny thing is I've never actually preached it in the context of Titus. <laughs> like I'm always you know, taking the, taking the verses out and talking about something else. But now what we're going to do is we're going to look at what these verses mean in the context of the letter and how the letter is flowing. We are more than halfway now. There's only one chapter to go after this. So let, let us read Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Now, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us here today to hear your word. We thank you for Titus and Paul and their ministry on Crete. We pray, Lord, that as we consider what Paul's, how Paul instructed Titus today, that we would ourselves be instructed, that we would be fed, that we would be nourished, that we would be convicted and comforted in equal measure. We thank you for this worship service. We thank you for this time together. We pray, God, that you would humble our hearts and our minds, that you would drive from us an inordinate loves that do not belong, that you would, Lord, take your seat upon the throne of our hearts, and that you would rule us from there. We thank you and we praise you in the name of Jesus Christ, and amen. Now, one of the things that Paul wants us to understand is that when we increase our knowledge of God, our life must, increasingly must be increasingly characterized by growth in obedience. Growth in obedience to his will and growth in conformity to his image. That's the purpose. That's the purpose. If you, if you turn with me to 2 Corinthians 3.18, this is a verse that we've talked a lot about over the last few years. And we're going to talk about it again today. So we go to first, or 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says there, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, what, what we are talking about here, what Paul is talking about in this section is that very verse, remember that Titus was the one who carried the epistles to Corinth. He, he knows what, what Paul had said to them. He knows this doctrine and, and what Paul is doing in this letter is he's writing in shorthand. Okay, so he's given Titus the household codes. He said, this is how you are to conduct yourself in the household of God. That's what um, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 are all about. And now what he's doing is giving the theological reason why. Right? He, he says, here are all the good works that you must do. And now he's explaining the source of the strength and the power to do the good works that he's already described. Because what he knows is the more that we look upon the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, the more we will in, in increase in conformity to him and, and in likeness in, of him and in worship of him and delight in him. The more we behold Jesus Christ, the more Jesus Christ we have and the more we become like Jesus Christ. That's what this section is about. He says, okay, you want to do all these things. Let me now explain to you how you get the strength to do it. 
Because if you go back and you look, what does it say? It says, older women, likewise, say, be reverent in behavior. So let's, how do you do that? Okay, if you're an older woman and you are to be reverent in behavior, which is priestly, that's what that word means, reverent. Were you wondering when I was preaching that sermon, how, how am I going to do that? Right? There's all these young ladies in the church. They need a good example, and I'm not reverent. <laughs> you think of yourself, how do I do it? Well, when you come to verses 11 through 14, we're told how it's done. And, and it's not about you. It's about Jesus. So, so he's given us the household, and now what he's giving us is the foundation of the household. And the, and the more we increase in knowledge, the more we ought to increase in obedience and conformity to him. Paul states explicitly connecting the practical behavioral exhortation of 2 through 10 to the rich theological statement of, of 11 through 15. 11 through 15 consists of a great number of doctrines, right? It, it, it's, it talks about grace. It talks about salvation. It talks about godliness. It talks about um, the present age. What does that mean? It talks about hope. It talks about Christ coming again. It's talking about zeal. It's talking about all kinds of things. And what Paul wants to connect with, without a doubt is what he's told us to do with the power in which we ought to do it. That, that's what he wants. He wants us to see this connection. His behavioral exhortation are what accords with sound doctrine. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 1, it says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then what he does is he tells them all these things that go along with sound doctrine. If you're going to have sound doctrine, you're going to be a man who's self-controlled. You're going to be a, a, a young woman who loves her husband and her children. You're going to do all these things. This is what accords. This is what equates with. This is what goes along with sound doctrine. And then he says, here is the sound doctrine, in case you were confused. Okay? If, if this is the doctrine that you have, verses 11 through 14, your life will look like verses 1 through 10, whether you're an old man, a young man, an old woman, or a young woman. In, two, in chapter 2, 11 through 14, Paul explains what the sound doctrine consists of. That doctrine could be summarized as the grace of God. Right? What is the salvation of God? The grace of God. What is the hope of God? The grace of God. What, what is, um, the, in the present age, how do, what, how do we describe the present age? God's grace. How do we describe the coming age? God's grace. How do we describe Christ coming the first time? Grace. How do we explain Jesus returning? Grace. The grace of God is what all of these doc is how you summarize all of Paul's doctrine. And what Paul wants us to understand is that this grace of God is not just some inanimate object. It's not an idea. It's, it's not something that just exists in our minds. Oh, we understand what grace is. It's God's unmerited favor. What he wants us to understand is that it is a force moving through this world. It is a force animating you. It is a force bringing you to life. It is a, it is a force like a, like a puppeteer. <laughs> it's the grace of God are the strings upon which we dance for the Lord Jesus. Right? The, it's the mechanism. It's the grace of God is why we are here, and the grace of God is how we continue to, to live here in his presence, to gather in his presence, to be his people. The grace of God is essential to understanding Paul's um, doctrine in, in all of his epistles. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 8, it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, 
Grace is the gift of God. And I think all of us are used to, uh, to hearing, okay, grace came down out of heaven and saved me. I am saved by grace through faith. And, and that is generally where it stops. We think that's all grace came to do was to save us. We think uh, saving us is the gospel. And saving us is actually not the gospel. Because what we often don't want to talk about is saved to do what? Saved from what to what? These are the things that you used to do when you, when you were a slave to God, not a slave to God, but a slave to Satan, and now you're a slave to God. And so do slaves generally just sit in the house and do nothing? Because that's what we think. We think okay, last week, Mike, that was very convincing. I'm a slave in the household of God. And so what I do is I sit by the back door and just sit there. And you, No, when you're made a slave of a household, what is it that slaves do? They work. And, and this, is a, this is, right, automatically some of you are like, wait a minute, he said work. <laughs> That's He's already going on dangerous ground. Because we don't understand what the gospel is. So many people are told that the gospel is, if you want the grace of God, be zealous for good works. Show me your zeal and show me your good works and we'll give you grace. And other people say the, grace of, or the gospel of God is this. Here, he gives us an abundance, an, an endless amount of grace. But is that the gospel? No, the gospel is, what we learn from Paul, is that we receive grace so that we would be what? A treasured possession who are zealous for good works. And, and, and this is the rub. Are you zealous for good works? I'm, I know you're zealous for a lot of things, right? College football started yesterday. Hallelujah. The Mariners are killing it right now, right? Boating season hasn't ended. We got a three-day weekend coming. There's a lot to be zealous about, baby. But are we zealous for good works? Because when we, when we say something like that, we, we either want to dismiss it like, well, you know, God doesn't care about good works. He cares about grace, right? Or we want to be zealous, but we don't want to be zealous for that kind of, like, what do you mean? Like, love my neighbor? Come on, man, right? The, we're going we're gonna to do another sermon about this? Yes. Right? <laughs> it is no problem for me to repeat these things because you need to hear it. Paul's gospel is presented here in, in four verses, and it's wonderfully, wonderfully um, brought to life, I think, by what he says and what he chooses to say about it. The metaphors that he chooses, um, the way he describes it, the effect that it has on us, what, what we're looking for in this age, what we're looking for in the next age, what he has is an extremely rich gospel. And, and it's not just be zealous for good works to get the grace. It's not just that you got the grace. It's here is grace. What are you going to do about it? And, and I think that's a message that the world needs to hear. They need to hear the unbelievable message of, that grace appeared in this world, that grace came down from heaven and, and, and came among us. They need to hear that, and then the very next thing they need to hear is, so what are you going to do about it now? And, and when we talk to our kids and we explain the gospel to them, we say, okay, the, the Lord God chose you. At, he bought, purchased you. You are his. You are his treasured possession. And then, and then you say, now what are you going to do? Because all too often when we're instructing our children and we're disciplining our children, we just say, hey, I hate that you did this. I don't like that you did this. Right? We're, we're, we're responding to things that have already happened, and, and when we correct them, it has a lot to do with what we don't like. But if you want to try, like, how about you discipline your kids before they even do something bad? Right? In, the, in, in, the, in the morning, they've already sinned a couple of times by the time they come to the breakfast table, but it's not too late. You sit them down and you say, listen, 
Yahweh Elohim from the deep heavens came down and became a man that he might purchase you with his blood. Now what are you going to do? And, and I think this is Paul's challenge to us. He tells us what the gospel is, and in the end he says, the point of it is to be zealous for good works. So what are you going to do? And if I was the, if I, right, if, if you're in Crete, and, and Titus is reading this letter out loud to everybody, I think what Paul is expecting is all the people in Crete to be like, yeah, woo, let's go get Crete. Let's take it, right? Let's put these households back in order. Let's get some elders. Let's get the ball rolling. Because the problem with Christian people isn't that they don't believe these things. It isn't even necessarily that they don't understand them. It's that they don't care. It has no effect on the way that they live. I would say that is the number one problem in the Christian church. It's not that we don't know. It's not that we don't believe. It's that it doesn't matter to us. It, it has no, right? It's, it, it's not an engine in the car driving us down the road. It's not the thing that gets us up in the morning. It's not the thing that, makes, that causes us to love our spouses. It's just this thing that we know. And, and, and the, the lack of power is so prevalent amongst us. Because, right, I, I, and I don't, I'm not just pointing fingers. I'm saying all of us. I, I, I don't know how many times I read this book, and I, I just pass over that word zealous, and I think, you know what that means is more excited than normal. <laughs> Slightly happier than usual, right? Kind of likes it a little bit more than he dislikes other things. But that's not what zeal is. When Paul dwells on the triune God's intervention in human life, there is no term more adequate than that of God's unmerited favor given to us in Christ. And, and Christ is the point, right? That's what he's, all of the doctrines he's going to give us, this, this, this excited zeal that we're supposed to have, this grace that moves us down the road, this grace that animates us, when he's explaining what it is, it's always Christ. It's always Christ. And the more of him you have, the more zeal you have. The more of him you have, the more obedience you have. The more of him that you have, the more conformity to him you have. Now, Jesus' ministry, his life, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, what was the point of that? Right? I, I don't, again, I will repeat myself. If the point was that he died so that you could be saved, why wouldn't they have just let Herod do it in chapter 3 and gotten the whole thing over with? Right? I mean, the gospel could have been three chapters. Jesus descended, right, the whole, or the Holy Spirit came down, impregnated Mary. Mary gives birth. Herod sends the soldiers. Jesus dies. Boom, we're all saved. What was all of that other stuff about? Why is he going around to Capernaum? Why is he going to Jerusalem? Why is he addressing this and addressing that? Why is he talking to the Samaritans? Why is he, talking, why is he doing all of the things he's doing? That's Paul is telling us here. Why? It, 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 that's the grace that came down out of heaven, okay? And it appeared, that's the first thing he says it did, it appeared. For the grace of God has appeared. Now, that word is a very strange word that's only used a few other times in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 1, verse 79, if you turn with me there, Luke 1, 79. So this is Zechariah's prophecy about his son and the Lord. 
right? This is Zechariah back when John the Baptist was born and when, and when Jesus was born, they, they were going back and forth and having these prophecies about what, who these young men were going to be. And at the end of Zechariah's prophecy, he says this of the Lord. He says, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now those words in, in verse 79, to give light, is that word appeared. And the sunrise shall visit us from on high. The Lord God will appear. And, and, and the only other time this word is used is actually in Acts, another book written by Luke. And there it tells us a little something about Paul's theology, Paul's poetic theology. Because in Acts 27, verse 20, it says, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. Acts 27, 20. It says, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Now, doesn't that sound like what they need is the sunrise to appear, to appear from on high? Right? There's, there they are in the little boat, and there's been no sun, there's been no stars that appeared in the sky, and they think that they're all lost. Now, doesn't that describe the world before Christ came? And so when Paul is describing what, what it was like when Christ came the first time, he's using this word that you typically use of the sun and stars. There was darkness, and then a great light appeared. There was utter darkness, and there was this, and we get the word epiphany from this Greek word. There was a sudden striking revelation. And that is what the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ was. was. And, and this grace appeared for what purpose? To save us, right? And, and not just us, but all men. And I think this is another part that confuses people. And that's why this very dense, highly compact set of verses can be very confusing to people. Because what does it mean that salvation came to all people? This striking revelation was made to all people. And, and what people get confused about here is that, it, that, that salvation, does this mean that it applies to everybody? So like, why, why preach? Why have church? Why make a distinction between Christians and non-Christians if what Paul is saying is that salvation has come to everybody? But I don't think that's what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about universal salvation. He's talking about this striking revelation. Striking revelation. Because Jesus really did win. And, and I think this is where we get very confused about categories. Every single person who ever lived will be resurrected. There will be one day where, the, where Christ appears suddenly to all of us in the flesh, and there will be this great revelation yet again of the grace of heaven that every human being that ever lived will see. We will all see it. He will defeat death for all, every one of us, for those who loved him and those who didn't. And I think we have a hard time understanding this salvation. We get a little, it gets tricky for us, but this is what he's talking about. He's talking about the end. If you go to Philippians... This famous passage from chapter 2, Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5, it says, I have this, uh, have this mind, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, ladies and gentlemen, there will be a day, a day of great striking revelation, of an epiphany, of a dawning of the new age, the next age to come, and every single human being will see it, and every single human being will recognize that Jesus is, in fact, who he said he was. Now, that resurrection life that they are all going to enjoy, some will then be ushered into what? A fire from which they cannot be killed. Right? They will be, they will be sent to hell a burning fire that cannot kill them because they are now have resurrected bodies. And that eternal damnation is what those who do not love him, that is what the, that, that's all that they can hope for. That's what they wanted. They didn't want to be with him. And he will lift them up out of the ground because he defeated death and he will put them there. He'll be like, here, you didn't want me? You're welcome, right? This is how gracious I am. I will give you even what you want, even though it's bad for you. And all the rest of us who have already seen the light once, because I don't know what, right? This is, we, we talk about it in Amazing Grace, right? We were blind and now we see. It was a world of darkness, now it's a world of light. We have seen the Lord Jesus Christ. We know the Lord Jesus Christ. We know how, how bright and glorious and beautiful the gospel is. And so we've seen the, the great appearing. We've seen the epiphany. And we will see it again. There is a day that will come when we will look upon the Lord God in our flesh as resurrected beings, and we will be ushered into eternal life with him. And, and this, is, this is Paul's gospel. Paul's gospel is that grace appeared, grace descended from heaven, and, and it's for everyone. Everyone will know it, everyone will behold it, everyone will acknowledge it. But that's not all that grace does. This is where so many people stop. People say, okay, the grace appeared, and it saved me. The grace appeared, and it, and it was a great striking revelation from heaven that all men will know. And then, and then it stops. That's where so many gospel presentations stop. But he goes on. Because if you're not, if, if you're not careful, you miss it here in verse 12 of Titus chapter 2. It says, training us. Well, what's training us? Right? It, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. What, what is doing that? Well, if you go back, it's grace. The grace of God appeared. The grace of God brought salvation. The grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And, and I, this is where it challenges our ideas of grace, because that's, grace trains us? Grace potty trains us? I thought grace was just a free gift. You mean, you mean grace stands there? <laughs> I, I love this. Some people in this church, they have a incredible way of um, teaching their kids to go to the bathroom. And that is they're like, okay, Saturday, we're going to teach them to go to the potty like a big kid. And they spend one 24-hour period standing by the door, swat, swatting the kid every time they get off the toilet, and, and they do this whole intense day. And I'm like, man, that's like a picture of grace if I've ever heard of that, right? But that's not what we think of when we think of grace. I don't think of grace standing outside the bathroom door swatting me every time I'm going to go pee on the floor, right? That's, but, but when you think of training, when you think of basic training, here's another one, training us. Now, some of you have actually been to basic training. I've never been, thank God. Small mercies, I would have died. But if you recall, right, the walls you had to climb over, the 4 a.m. PT, the food you had to eat, the gun cleaning, the polishing, the standing by your bed, all of that, okay, that is what he's talking about here. Grace is training you like a drill sergeant. And, and tell me that I'm wrong. 
right? You, you go to a party and you say something stupid and you, and you feel embarrassed by it. And, and it's not that like a drill sergeant, right? Your conscience, because you've been, you've been saved by Jesus Christ, immediately, immediately is standing there with the baton under his arm. Give me 10. And you're like, man, ooh, oh, oh. Okay, then, then, then later on you lie to someone and you know it's a lie and you're standing there and you're like, I don't really, in your mind you're thinking, I don't know why. <laughs> I'm sure that never happens to any of you. But it happens to me sometimes. I'm like, that was a white lie, that was a harmless lie, but there was absolutely no reason to tell it. And then later, I'm just like, I, I feel like i got to call the person, and, 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 and all it's going to do, they didn't, they didn't know, they'll never know that it was not true, but it's going to eat away at me. And there I am, right, having to get up at 4 a.m. in the morning and do PT. That's what it feels like. And, and this is a kind of grace we don't like. We don't like the drill sergeant grace. The, the word that is, that is translated as training is actually padea. It's a form of the word padea. And this word means education. It's worldview training. This is what we talk about when we talk about educating our children, which is to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, the padea of the Lord. And in the Greek culture, padea wasn't just, you know, math facts. Uh, padea was a worldview. It, it was understanding the world in a particular way. And so we raise our children in, to understand, right, in the padea of the Lord, to understand the worldview of of Christ and who he is and what he has done and what it means in every subject. That's, this is how we do Christian education. What you find here is that what, what Paul is saying is that the grace of God, right, is, is padeaing us. That's a weird word. Padeaing us, right? God the Father is raising us in the education of himself, right? The grace appeared, the grace saved us, and now what it's doing is it's training us to say no and to say yes, so your flesh, right? You've already eaten three cheeseburgers. It wants one more. And, that, and, there, and there the drill sergeant is, your conscience, and he's like, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And you're like, oh, okay, I'm not going to do it. And you're like, yes, victory. <laughs> and the drill sergeant says, all right, good, you're dismissed. You get a, you get a pass now, right? Go for it. And, and this is not how we usually think of grace. This is not, right? But he's actually teaching us what to say yes no to and what to say no to. Your son wants you to spend more time with him. You say yes. You want to go and you want to watch a fourth football game? That's what you should say no to. I'm not looking at you, Cubby. <laughs> okay? <laughs> you know something about someone else. And, and, and you're really concerned about it. You're genuinely concerned. And you're like, you know, I really want this person, person B, to know about person A so we can pray for them. And you're sitting there and you're like, should I tell this secret thing that I know or shouldn't I? And, and that, that moment where you're deciding yes or no, it, that's what, this is what the grace appears for. So that you can learn what to say yes to and what to say no to. And largely how this works, as Augustine has helped us understand, is to train our affections, to train our hearts, to train our minds. And the more we read the gospel, the more we contemplate who God is and what he's done for us, the more we consider him, the more like him we will become, and the more we will learn how to say yes and no correctly. Because God really does care what we say yes or no to. And so this grace that it, it, it didn't just come and find you in the dark world and, 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 and put a stamp of salvation on you and leave you there, right? He climbed all the way down into the pit. He lifted you out, and now he's going with you, this grace that appeared, and he's in, no, not that, this. No, don't do that, do this. Do this, not that. And he's taking you through life. And, and, you, and you think, well, I've never seen him. 
I've never heard him. I don't, I don't understand. Who, where is he? But then you go to Philippians, and it says what? Great, right? The Lord Jesus Christ is at hand. So everyone hold up your hand. Everyone hold it up. Okay, we're not Gnostics. That's how close the Lord Jesus Christ is. He's with you. And, and, if, and, if, and, and this is what you have to learn, because I, I make so many decisions... Um, oftentimes, uh, husbands, I'm sure that you can go along with me on this one. I have to make decisions all the time about things I couldn't care less about. And so my poor sweet wife comes to me, and she's got like five reasons why she thinks we should do something. She gets to reason two, and I say, okay, we'll do it. She's like, can I, can I, can I give you the other three? <laughs> can, we, can we finish the conversation before you just make a decision? Now, I'm like that on unimportant things. So you can imagine what I might be like on unimportant things, right? I'm just like, boom, make the decision. Ready? Fire aim, right? I am that guy through and through. I will leave a mic-sized hole in the wall like nobody's business, like an old Looney Tunes cartoon. And I go, Mike must have been here. And, and what the Lord wants is for us to have a more contemplative life. He wants us to look. He, he cares about what we're saying yes to and what we're saying no to. He wants us to consider, I think, more carefully. Because we have a, a body that has desires that just reacts, Right? I never, I, I never have to sit, I, I'm never in my, on my couch on a Tuesday afternoon, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to go through like a, a process now and try to determine if I'm hungry. Right? I'm, I'm, hmm, let's take my temperature. What's the last time since I ate? I do all this math. No, you know what happens? I get hungry, I go to the fridge, I eat food. Right? Because my body just reacts. And, and, and your, your, your moral life Okay? Your reason, your logic is, is very much like that. And when you become a Christian, what you have to do is, is when we receive the grace of God, we have to depend upon it, the grace, which is Christ, which has come down out of heaven. We have to depend upon him to help us make these decisions. Too many of us are making decisions just lickety-split like this, like this, without really thinking about the consequences of what we're doing. Is this what the Lord Jesus wants me to do? Now, there are some people, largely of the engineer types, who probably need to make some decisions a little faster. Okay? I, I'm not necessarily... <laughs> For you, though, it's the same thing. What he wants you to do is to say yes or no. He, he doesn't want you to go on contemplating it for 15 years. Okay? Well, let's make another spreadsheet and determine the pros and cons. <laughs> there, there was one engineer who I, I, I was talking to him about making faster decisions, and I, I thought, you know, you should play speed chess with someone where you just have to make, like, all <laughs> decisions as fast as you can. And I just came up with that on the moment, but now this is my standard um, counseling of, of uh, engineer types. <laughs> it's like you need to make decisions quicker. But that's not how most of us are, okay? Most of us are making decisions way too fast. And, and I, I don't know that time you bought the car, that time you got the home loan, that time you said that thing to, to the person. There are tons of times in your life where you did not stop and think at all. And you, you didn't think of the Lord Jesus Christ. You didn't think of the grace that has descended. You didn't think, you know, this yes or no matters a great deal to God, and I should do it very carefully. God's grace continues to operate beyond the act of salvation in the sanctification process of every Christian, okay? That the grace that saved us, that brought us out of the tomb, goes with us, okay? We often think of that story of Lazarus, Lazarus, sorry, who Jesus said, Lazarus, come out, and he came out, right? He did. He, he, he came back to life, and he came out of the cave. Well, then what happened then, 
right? We, we tend to use that as a metaphor for us, but that's actually not a good metaphor because he called us out of the tomb and, and he's standing there by the door and he's waiting for us and we come out and, we t- and they take the death clothes off of us. That's all that stinky old stuff that we used to do, all that decay and rot. We have to clean it all off at baptism. Just like Lazarus had they, the last verse that there Jesus says, um, take his death clothes off. And I, yeah, okay. So then we enter baptism and that's what we do. But then Jesus is there and he goes with us. He goes with us. The grace that saves us is the grace that trains us. And so we are not, we, what we need to be is more actively engaged in the process. Because I don't know about you, but I feel like I check out of the process all the time. The Christian life is hard, especially when it's like you're paying job. And sometimes, sometimes it's a very risky thing for someone like me to treat the faith like a job and not like a way of life. Now, for, for I, I actually, and I, re, I remember what it was like before I was a pastor, because I remember getting up and sitting there and listening to Dean preach, just like you're listening to me preach. And by Tuesday, I, people would ask me what the sermon was about, and I'd be like, I don't really remember. Right? I did my Christian thing on Sunday. And now I'm here. It's Tuesday. I'm at work. What does that have to do with this? And, and what we need to understand is that the grace that saves us goes with us. Okay? The Lord who's standing here at the head of his table is not going to stay here and be like, okay, I'll see you guys next week. Bye. Have fun. Storm in the castle. <laughs> no, he's, he, he came with you here. He's sitting with you now. When you get up to leave, he will go with you. When you go home after, after church and, and when you're talking to your spouse, he's there. When, when you get in your car to go to work tomorrow, he's there. When you're at your desk and you're stealing uh, you know, paper clips, he's there. right? When, when, when you're in the boardroom and you're giving a presentation, he's there. When, when you're at the grocery store, he's there. He's, he's with you. And, and, and that should do two things. That should terrify the bejesus out of us. And that ought to give us a great deal of comfort. And, and I think that's when we're getting to the zeal part, but I think that it's an emotional response that it gets from us. I understand that there's a Christianity that's very popular right now that's nothing but emotional response, but the reaction to that is not a Christianity absolutely void of all emotional response. Right? He is there with you everywhere you go. How do you feel about him? What's your relationship with him? Are you talking to him? Are you discussing the issues of your life with him? Because that is what the Christian life is all about. That's what Paul is saying. You, you know, you go back, and it's a, uh, chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, a sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may put... How do you actually accomplish that? How do you accomplish that? Well, there is this person who goes with you everywhere you go. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the grace that saved you. He, he, he called you out of the tomb, and he's there. And so when it comes time, well, is this going to be sound speech or unsound speech? Jesus, what do you think? And, and if you're worried about what, looking like a nut? Because right, I, you, you don't have to necessarily talk to him out loud. Maybe don't do that. I'm not saying that. But do you consider him at all? There's a book, (laughs) there's a good book, it's by Marilyn Robinson, it's called Gilead, and it's an old pastor writing, the whole book is him writing a letter to his son, and he's telling stories about family members, and he had a grandfather who used to talk about the fact that Jesus was with him all the time. And you know, when I first read it, I was like, this guy, 
Sounds like a nut, right? This guy sounds like a nut. He's just walking around talking to Jesus all the time, and it sounds crazy. So I read this book, I don't know, 15 years ago. Well, I read it last year, and I got to this part, and I was like, you know, this guy is actually the Christian in this whole bunch because Jesus is real. Jesus is there. Jesus is present. Jesus isn't just somebody who goes down to the church on Sunday to see with everybody else. Jesus is a reality to him. And, and, and I found, after 10 years, that my Christian maturity brought him to a point where, like, yeah, you know, I wish I acted like, more like this guy. People are like, well, why are you doing this? Well, I talked to Jesus, and this is what, this is what I thought, based on, on what he had to say, what was the best course of action. <laughs> and if you talk like that, aren't you going to sound like a nut? But isn't the, isn't the gospel nutty already, right? <laughs> right? There's a, the, we have that passage read for us today, and, and there used to be this element of where the Christians seem a little crazy. The Christians seem like crazy people. Right? And they used to, when, when in the first century, say things about us that they didn't understand, like they marry their, their siblings because, you know, we call each other brother and sister, and they've got some dead guy that they eat pieces of their cannibals, and they would say all these things about Christians. But Christianity and its popularity now, right, how, how it's been for the last 50, 60 years in America, it's not that crazy to be a Christian. It's only just now becoming crazy again because they're doing things like um, making men into women and letting them shower with everybody else. So now those who don't believe in that thing are becoming crazy. But when is the last time that your Christianity, your relationship to Jesus Christ, got other people to think of you as maybe being a little nutty? This is what I want you to think about when you go into the week. Where is Jesus right now and what is he doing? And I want you to, I want you to wait and I want you to ask yourself strategically throughout the week. Right? Sit down at your desk, if you have a desk, sit down at the kitchen table, sit down on the couch when you're going to fold some, wherever it is you're doing work this week, and just sit there and think, is he here? Is he here right now? Does he care about what I'm doing? Does he care about what I'm saying yes to and what I'm saying no to? Does he care about my life right now? What, what would he want me to do right now? And that is a very different way of living. And that's what... Paul is trying to get us to understand, because you, you hear, right, by the time you get done down from chapter 2, verse 1, down to 10, you get to verse 10, and you ought to feel awful burdened. I, and how many weeks in a row now have we listened to these sermons, and, and there is a sense of burdensomeness to it? Oh, now, I, now Mike's, uh, he's calling me out because I'm not a slave. He's calling me out because I'm not self-controlled, right? And you go through this list, and you're like, dude, Paul, relax, right? You're getting awful judgy. And then you get down to this, and it's just pure gospel grace beauty. You want to do all of those things? Jesus. Jesus is the answer. He's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. He's training us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Remember, self-control is what he, he told every category of Christian to be self-controlled. Old men must be, old ladies, young women, Young men, everybody is supposed to be self-controlled. And it's the grace that trains us to be self-controlled. Because right? we can talk all day long about habits and how you form them and how you create them. But, but ultimately, right, are the habits going to make you an upright and godly person? 
We live in a world now where people have terrible habits, and, and I don't know how many books it's been suggested to me about reading them about micro habits and all these little, you just make these minor changes here and there in your life, and then everything will be wonderful. But self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Self-control is something that's given to me by God. And, and so I'm, I try to create more self-control all the time by myself. But could I create salvation, right? When I say, okay, could you save yourself? All of us are good Protestants. We're like, no, that's ridiculous. Of course not. But then I say, okay, can you give yourself more self-control? And I think most of us are like, yeah, of course. Uh, mm, interesting. Okay, well, you were dead and the Spirit gave you life. You didn't have it. You couldn't get it yourself. He had to give it to you. And then there's these category of things like joy, peace, patience, self-control, but, and you think somehow you're going to manufacture them all by yourself. Now, there's a, a bit of a... Some of you, I think, I can see the wheels turning. So we don't do anything. We just sit around, and he just shazams us all with some self-control. No, that's not how it works either. Because what you're saying no to and what you're saying yes to, you're actually the one having to say yes and no. But where are you trained in how to say yes or no? And so everything that we do is a work of God and a work of us. It's, it's a cooperative project. He wants you to act a certain way, and, and you've got to know, find out how it is he wants you to act, and then you have to actually, okay, Jesus, this is what you want me to do. I, this is too much for me, and so I'm going to need the Holy Spirit to do it. And what happens when you pray that prayer? What happens when you seek him in order to do the thing he told you to do? He will provide every time for you the ability to do the thing he told you to do. And, and it's this cooperative relationship where the two of you are working together, right? You're listening and obeying him. That is how you actually gain joy, peace, patience, self-control. Self it's, it's us responding to him is how we get the things he is giving us. And so I, I don't want to make it seem like you just, okay, I'm going to lay on my couch and I'm going to say, more self-control. And then I'm just going to have it. That's not it. No, sit on your couch Okay? Read three chapters of Proverbs and then say, you know, <laughs> Jesus, this, I don't know how you did this. I mean, I've read the Gospels. You did all the stuff in this. This is insane. And then you read Job and you're like, wow, you did that one too. I mean, you, you did this. I don't know how you could have done this. But please, please, I beg you, without you, I can't. So give me the strength. Give me the understanding. Give me the desire. Give me the zeal to do Proverbs chapter 2 through 7. And, and it's this cooperative, this is what the whole letter to Titus has been about. Because what, what are they engaged in? A cooperative heaven and earth, right, house building project. We are going to work together by the power of God, by, by the blueprints of God to build the house of God in Crete. And so they've been given the floor plans, verses 1 through 10, and now they're, they're, they're told how to accomplish the floor plan. And, that, and, and, and how? Grace. It's grace from top to bottom. Now, there's, there's one last thing. Well, the next thing, second to last thing, is verse 12 closes with a reference to this present age. And that's very confusing to people. But the Christian um, needs to understand that this, this is a reference that the apostles make to the, this world in which you live and breathe, right? And, and then the next age is, is the one after we die, after the resurrection. So, so this age will go on until Jesus brings all of his enemies under his feet, until he defeats all of them, the last one being death, and then the new age will begin. 
Because, what, because so many people think, okay, we're not of this world. This world has nothing to do with the kingdom of heaven. And, but, but Paul is saying, no, in this present age, godliness matters. In the present age, self-control matters. Because the kingdom of heaven is, what are we asking? We're asking, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, so this, this Baptistic idea that you all are a bunch of pilgrims, that you're all, right, this isn't really our home, and so it doesn't matter what happens here, is all a bunch of nonsense. Okay? Now, I, right, Jerusalem above, is she is our mother, she's free, we are true citizens of that, but what's happening is that is descending down, and this, right, heaven and earth are going to be wed together. Jesus Christ matters or cares about what you say yes to and what you say no to. He cares about the present age. There is not just some golden elevator like Willy Wonka at the end where we all get in it and we hit the button and then it floats off into space and we're like, ah, get it. See you later, losers. When Jesus descended onto the earth, did he, right? He came down all the way to the earth all the way to the womb. He was here. He cares about this place. He, and, and he saved you, and he's instructing you in how to continue bringing his kingdom into this place. But that's not the only thing he's concerned about. He, he's not, right, how, how do we have the energy? How do we have the strength? How do we have the power to, to do all of that work here that he wants us to do? And C.S. Lewis said it best. He said, those who did the most for earth were those who thought the most of heaven. Right? The, the, right? When you think of, when all you care about is earth, you get neither heaven nor earth. When all you think about is heaven and, and the priorities of heaven and the laws of heaven and the grace of heaven and the descent of heaven, when your mind is on heaven, you do the most for this earth. And I think that that is something that we all need to think a great deal about. Because, and, and I think that's what Paul means in, his, in the next section. Because he says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because when right, we think of what God has done, what God will do, and, and that is the strength and power, that, 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 that's where we get strength and power to do the things in this world that we need to do. Because I don't know about you, but it, so it, say you're working, you, you know, you're working away, you're doing all you can, and, and then something terrible happens where your spouse dies, a beloved friend, right? You, you're doing this work, and the person you're doing the work with is no longer here. And, and, and you think, well, that w- I mean, what's the point of carrying on, right? Why do we carry on? What's the point? There, there's this person, I prayed for him for years, and I never saw any fruit of the gospel in his life at all, and now he's not here, right? And, and so often, this is this pilgrim, well, this pilgrim mindset where you're just like, all I, I just got to hunker down and get the crap kicked out of me for however many years I'm here, and then we're going to get out of this place, and who knows what's going to happen, right? Who knows if my kids are going to be believers? Who knows if Jesus really wins? Who knows how long this is all going to last? And there's this pessimism. And, and I've talked about this so many times. When people lose hope, when people lose any concept of the next age and, and how it's actually currently affecting this one, it's impossible to do anything in this age. The only reason we can do anything in this age is because, without a doubt, we have certainty about the next one, right? It's the hope. The hope of the next age is what he, the end of time, the resurrection invaded the current state, right? This is what everyone, everyone was confused. In the Old Testament, they thought, okay, 
um, God is going to just reverse everything, and, it, and he's going to fulfill his promise about slaying the Satan and the dragon, and he's going to undo all the terrible things, and it's just going to be like that. But that's actually not what happened. The end of history, the next age, where the Lord Jesus Christ invaded the current age and brought his resurrection right into the middle of this world and this age in, in order to transform it. And so now what he's done is he's created a bulwark, and he's worked his way out in the kingdom of heaven, and that can, can, can kingdom continues to spread, and that in the far-off age has invaded this age, and it's winning. It, it's permeating the whole thing. And, and, it's, and when we consider the hope of where all of this is going is where we get the strength to, to operate in this world now. Now, if, go with me for a second to Hebrews 11.1, 1, and let me explain what I mean by this. Because I don't know about you, but I need hope, right? Um, it will not be long, and my wife and I will be, be the front end of the generational fight. And, and this terrifies me. And the, more, and the closer that it, it gets, the more terrifying it is. Because I, I'm 42 years old, I'm a minister, I, right? but sometimes I still need to call dad. I still need to call my old man and be like, dude, please, what do you think I have to do about this? Talk to me, giving me some comfort. And I was thinking the other day, you know, one day I'm going to pick up the phone to call him and, and forget that he's gone. Now, right, and, and there's people who, who lose, who, who don't become believers. That we, like I was saying before, there's all kinds of tragedy. There's all kinds of difficulty. There's all kinds of struggle. And if we just think about this age, we, we will never have the strength to do anything in it. So if you, if you turn with Hebrews, Hebrews 11, Verse 1, it says this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, the word translated as assurance is a, is a fruit of this saving faith. The assurance is, is not the best translation of this word. Okay, we're talking about the fruit. We're talking about the light that has come into this world, this striking revelation, this ongoing work that God is doing in our lives. It, one of the things it produces is assurance. The assurance of things hoped for, but assurance is not a very good word. The Greek word is hypostasis, which means existence or being. Now, Dutch theologian Hermann Witsius understood this passage to mean that there are, is hypostasis, substance or reality, to the objects of our faith. The word's basic meaning is substantial nature, essence, actual being, reality, and underlying structure to, in contrast to what merely seems to be. And so Paul, in, in Hebrews 11.1, 1, is saying, in faith, things hoped for become realized. Now, Herman Witsius wrote that faith causes the thing hoped for, though not yet actually existing, to exist in the mind of the believer, who assents as firmly to the promises of God as if he saw the blessings promised already present. And so what all this means, for example, is that Christ promises that we will be resurrected, right? He says, you will be resurrected. And, and by faith, I don't know about you, but I've actually caught myself, I read this by Herman Witsius, and it's kind of hard to understand. But when I thought about it, I was like, you know, this is true, because I think of the resurrection as a day in the future. Like, I imagine what, like, it's going to be a Tuesday, it's going to be February 14th, or some, you know, it's going to have a, a, why not, because it's real love. Come on, Rachel. There's a date to it. When I think of it, I think, like, I, when, because this is, 
it, it, it's affected my life in ways I can hardly understand. Because there's something about me being a Christian now that's very different from when I was a non-believer. And, and my wife can attest to this fact. It's like, we come back from a vacation, and like within a couple of days, I, wanted, I already want to know when the next one is. I'm like, I, because I like, oh, on this date, we're going to go to this place. We're going to go, or we get done with the date, and I'm like, telling me when the next date is. Okay, on this date, we're going to go to that place. And, and as I'm doing all my work, and I'm putting up with all the things I have to put up with, because all I really want to do in life is hang out with my wife, I'm thinking of this date, I know when it's going to be, and I'm like, I can get through anything to get to that day. And, and I was thinking, you know, I never, ever did anything like that when I was an unbeliever. And where did this come from within me? Well, it's, it comes from my theology, right? Jesus says, it's finished. Jesus says, I win. Jesus says, you'll see me in the flesh. And I'm used to thinking of these things way off in the future and, and thinking about them like they really exist. And, and people say, and, and I talk like the, re, the resurrection, like it's going to be my birthday next year. Because even if I die, I'm still going to, right? February 2nd still coming. And, and the resurrection is like that, right? B- besides the God destroying the cosmos, right? September 15th is going to happen. And, and when you believe in Jesus, when you believe in the promises that he gives you, your faith grabs hold of that. Your faith makes it substantive. It gives it reality, and it gives us strength. Because how many times when your heart is broken and the world is dark and, and you know that Jesus is king and you know that he is Lord and you know that he is one, but something has happened right here, right now, right? And, and he did that a long time ago. The future is a long time from now. I'm struggling with this right now. How many times have you thought of those promises that he's made us, those things that he's said to us, those things that seem far off, and, and they're like okay, well, you know, September 15th is coming. So if we just hold on, right? That, that gives us the strength to get up and do the thing that we're supposed to do right now. And, and again, the grace appears, the grace goes with us, and the grace is that goal set out far in advance that we know for a surety is coming. Because is Jesus lying? When you die and you go into the ground, will he not be there? Will you not see him? Or will he actually, like he said, be there? Will he actually resurrect you? Will you actually look upon him? And in your heart, you know it's true. And and with your faith, you believe it. And so what it is, is it gives you certainty. And you say, okay, now I can endure this. Now I can put up with this. And and that doesn't make the pain go away. It makes the pain endurable. That's the gospel. He suffered at our hands. Right? Every, every time we violate the law of God, it's like taking a giant knife out and trying to stab Jesus in the heart with it. Because the law is not a, not a, a list of impersonal rules. It's a person. And every time you sin, you're, you're, you're there, he's on the cross, and you're stabbing him again and again and again and again. And that's what you're doing when you sin. And he, he suffered at your hands. Okay? He suffered from you. And he, then he suffered, right? He's on the cross. He's suffering for you. He's enduring all of that sin so that you don't have to endure the wrath of God so that he might rise from the grave and go with us by the power of his spirit and, and suffer with us. Because when you're there in the midst of the pain and you're thinking of the far off day and you're thinking of the gospel and you're thinking of him, he is there with you in the suffering. And it's as if he's holding your hand. And he says, we can do this. 
This is not the end. I am who I said I am. It is finished. There, there is a day and where, where all of this that doesn't make any sense, you will look upon me and it will, and, and not only will you won't care if it makes sense anymore because you will be satisfied and filled. And this is the gospel that Paul is giving us in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. It, it's salvation, sanctification, and the hope of the resurrection life. John Calvin... When explaining this, this, this fact that our faith gives hypostasis, it, it gives substance to the promises of God, he explained it this way. He said, we are promised eternal life, but we are dead. We are told of, blessed re- of the blessed resurrection, but we are in a state of corruption. We are pronounced righteous, and yet we are dwelling places of sin. We hear that we are happy, and yet we are buried under countless miseries. We are promised riches of every kind of good, but are exceedingly hungry and full of thirst. God cries that he will come to us quickly, and yet to our own cry he seems to be deaf. What would become of us if we were not upheld by hope, and if our minds did not escape the darkness of this world through the bright light of God's word and his spirit? Faith, therefore, is said rightly to be the reality of the things we affirm in hope and the evidence of the things we do not see. Calvin then finishes, faith is the hypostasis, the support or possession on which we fix our foot. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant made by better promises. And when we lay hold of those promises by our faith, it is a sure footing. It is a sure footing from which to build. It is the foundation upon which we then go back to chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and do all of these things because we know that he is with us. He's known that he's made it possible. We know that in our weakness, he is our strength. We know in our hopelessness, he is our hope. We know in the darkness, he is our light. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And I don't know about you, but I need to hear that as often as I possibly can. Now, the last verse refers again to Jesus, and it, and it kind of ties a bow on the whole thing. It says, he gave himself for us to redeem us, there's the salvation again, from all lawlessness, there's the yes and no again, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So he summarizes everything he said. And Jesus, in in Mark 10.45, said he is a ransom for many. His blood, he he came down from heaven. He took on a human nature so that he could bleed because that, what we needed something, we needed the value of it. There's nothing in this world as valuable as the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're going to buy a whole bunch of people who live in all ages of man, you're going to purchase them, you've got to have something very valuable. Right, we've been talking about the slave market. You go down, you want to buy a slave, you've got to have the money. If you don't have the money, you can't buy the slave. Well, he goes down and he's like, well, I'll take the whole world. I'll buy all of it. Here, here's my blood. And all of us will see it, right? Every single person will be resurrected. This is what he's talking about the whole time. He has purchased us. He has redeemed us. We are his. All humankind will see him in the flesh, and they will recognize him as, as the Lord. But part of this was what? Part of why he bought us was, was what? 
his blood, his blood that paid for us so that we would be a treasured possession. And I think he got a raw deal. But it's not up to me. I think what, we are more valuable than your blood. This is what you spent it on? Us? And I don't know about you, but there are times when I, when I have sinned, and I'm thinking about him hanging there. And I think, that this, this thing that I did, that's, that's why you're there? This is what caused you to hang there? And I think, what a raw deal you got. Because I don't understand grace. And, and in those moments, what I need to tell myself is that he treasures me above even his own blood. Now, do you treasure anything? <laughs> if you came to me and you're like, listen, we can redeem this guy. He, he, he's in prison. You, we could get him out of prison. All you've got to do is drain your blood and give it to me. I'd be like, well, I hope he likes prison food because I ain't doing it. Right? Who, who exchanges their Like, oh, okay, so if I came to you and I'm like, I will give you, um, we're going to weigh your blood, and I'll give you its, value, its weight in gold. Well, just that seems like a reasonable exchange. You give me all your blood, and I'll give you all the gold, gold in its weight. And you think to yourself, well, that's actually, that's, think of all the things I could do with that gold. But then what would you do without the blood, right? There, think of all the different ways. What would you actually spend your blood on? What would you give your life for? And Jesus has one life, and what he wanted was a bunch of sinners. What he wanted was a bunch of people who aren't thankful, who, who don't think of him very often, who aren't listening, aren't obeying, and aren't paying that much attention to him. Now, what Paul wants to do is for us to hear this. He wants, he, there is a striking revelation. It is Jesus. He is present with you. He is the hope that lies in the next age. And what he, what he wants is now to say, listen, so now what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You, you can see what he's done. You can see what he's doing. You can see what he will do. What are you going to do? And this is a very different approach to the Christian life. It's, it's the gospel first and obedience next. It's are you zealous now? Does this have an emotional effect on you? Does this make you care more about what he thinks about yes and no? Does it make you care more about what he is going to do in the end? Does it, does it give you something to grab onto with your faith? I know that you believe. I know that you were his. The problem is we just don't care that much. <laughs> and, and what we all need to do is be far more zealous and, and consider him in everything. So as you go about your, your week this week, think, is he, where is he right now and what is he doing? What does he want me to do? And what has he promised me? And I, I just want you to dwell on those three things. Where is he and what is he doing? What does he want me to do right now? And what has he promised me? And, and whenever it gets dark, whenever it gets difficult, whenever you start to strain, whenever you're uncertain, you think of those three things. You think of him. And, and the more you contemplate him, the more like him you become. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you not, that you not only called us out of the tomb, Lord, but that you go with us and you sanctify us, Lord, and we know that we will see you again. And I pray that this hope would strengthen us and make us zealous, Lord, and that we would seek your face, that we would seek you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.